0: Soon came the Lydians, bearing the dead corpse, with the slayer following after. He then came and stood before the body and gave himself wholly into Croesus's power, holding out his hands and praying the king to slay him where he stood by the dead man. Remember, he said, my former mischance, and see how besides that I've undone him who purified me. Indeed, it's not fit that I should live. On hearing this, Croesus, though his own sorrow was great, took pity on Adrastus and said to him, Friend, I have from you all that justice asks, since you deem yourself worthy of death. It is not you I hold to be the cause of this evil, save insofar as you were the unwilling doer of it. Rather, it is the work of a god, the same who told me long ago what was to be. So Croesus buried his only son in such a manner as was fitting. But Adrastus, son of Gordius, who was son of Midas, this Adrastus, slayer of his own brother, and the man who purified him, When the tomb was undisturbed by the presence of men slew himself there by the sepulchre seeing now clearly that he was the most ill-fated wretch of all men whom he knew croesus after the loss of his son sat in deep sorrow for two years after this time the destruction by cyrus son of cambyses of the sovereignty of astyages son of cyzars and the growth of power of the persians caused him to cease from his mourning and he resolved, if he could, to forestall the increase of Persian power before they grew to greatness. Having thus determined, he straightway made trial of the Greek and Libyan oracles, sending messengers separately to Delphi, to Abe and Phocia, and to Dodona, while others again were dispatched to Ampharius and Trophonius, and others to Branchidae in the Milesian country. These are the Greek oracles to which Croesus sent for divination and he bade others to go inquire of Ammon in Libya. His intent in sending was to test the knowledge of the oracles, so that if they should be found to know the truth, he might send again, and ask if he should take in hand an expedition against the Persians. And when he sent to make trial of these shrines, he gave the Lydians this charge. They were to keep count of the time from the day of their leaving Sardis, and on the hundredth day inquire of the oracles what Croesus, king of Lydia, son of Heliades, was then doing. Then they were to write down whatever were, the or whatever were the oracular answers and bring them back to him. Now, none relate what answer was given by the rest of the oracles, but at Delphi, no sooner had the Lydians entered the hall to inquire of the god and ask the question with which they were charged than the Pythian priestess uttered the following hexameter verses. Grains of sand, I reckon, and measure the space of oceans. Here, when dumb men speak, and mark the speech of the silent. What is it now that I smell? Tis a tortoise, mightily armored, sodden in a vessel of bronze, with a lamb's flesh mingled together. Bronze thereunder is laid, and a mantle of bronze is upon it. Having written down this inspired utterance of the Pythian priestess, the Lydians went away back to Sardis, one well, the others as well who had been sent to diverse places, came bringing their oracles. Croesus then unfolded and surveyed all the writings. Some of them in no wise satisfied him, but when he heard the Delphian message, he acknowledged it with worship and welcome, considering that Delphi was the only true place of divination because it had discovered what he himself had done. For after sending his envoys to the oracles, he bethought himself of a device which no conjecture could discover and carried it out on the appointed day. Namely, he cut up a tortoise and a lamb, and then himself boiled them in a, cal- in a cauldron of bronze, covered with a lid of the same. Such, then, was the answer from Delphi, delivered to As to the reply, which the Lydians received from the oracle of Amphiarus, when they had followed the due custom of the temple, I cannot say what it was, for nothing is recorded of it. Saving that Croesus held that, from this oracle too, he had obtained a true answer. After this... He strove to win the favor of the Delphian god with great sacrifice. He offered up three thousand beasts from each kind fit for sacrifice, and he burnt on a great pyre couches covered with gold and silver, golden goblets and purple cloaks and tunics. By these means he hoped to better win the aid of the god, to whom he also commanded that every Lydian should sacrifice what he could. When the sacrifice was over, he melted down a vast store of gold, and made of it ingots, of which the longer sides were of six and the shorter of three palms' lengths, and the height was one palm. These were a hundred and seventeen in number. Four of them were refined gold, each weighing two talents and a half, and the rest were of gold and silver alloy, each of two talents' weight. He bade also to be made a figure of a lion of refined gold, weighing ten talents. When the temple of Delphi was burned, this lion fell from the ingots'. Which were the base whereon it stood. And now it lies in the treasury of the Corinthians, but weighs only six talents and a half, for the fire melted away three and a half talents. When these offerings were fully made, Croesus sent them to Delphi, with other gifts besides, namely two very great bowls, one of gold and one of silver. The golden bowl stood to the right, the silver and to the left of the temple entrance. These two were removed uh, about the time of the temple's burning. And now the golden bowl, which weighs eight talents and a half, and 12 minae lies in the treasury of the corinthians and the silver bowl at the corner of the forecourt of the temple this bowl holds six hundred nine-gallon measures for the delphians use it as a mixing bowl at the feast of the divine appearance it's said by the delphians to be the work of theodorus of samos and i believe them for it seems to me to be of no common workmanship moreover croesus sent four silver casks which stand in the treasury of the corinthians and dedicated two sprinkling vessels, one of gold, one of silver. The golden vessel bears the inscription given by the Lacedaemonians, who claim it as their offering, but they're wrong, for this too is Croesus's gift. The inscription was made by a certain Delphian, whose names I know but will not reveal, out of his desire to please the Lacedaemonians. The figure of a boy, through whose hand the water runs, is indeed a Lacedaemonian gift, but they did not give either of the sprinkling vessels. Along with these, Croesus sent, besides many other offerings of no great mark, certain round basins of silver, and a golden female figure three cubits high, which the Delphians assert to be the statue of the woman whose Croesus' baker. Moreover, he dedicated his own wife's necklaces and girdles. Such were the gifts which he sent to Delphi. To having learned of his valor and his fate, he dedicated a shield made entirely of gold, and a spear all of solid gold, point and shaft alike. Both of these lay still till my time at Thebes, in the Theban temple of Ismenia and Apollo. The Lydians who were to bring these gifts to the temples were charged by Croesus to inquire of the oracles, Shall Croesus send an army against the Persians, and shall he take to himself any allied host? When the Lydians came to the places whither they were sent, they made a present of their offerings, and inquired of the oracles, in these words, Croesus, king of Lydia and other nations, seeing that he deems that here are the only true places of divination among men, endows you with such gifts as your wisdom merits. And now he would ask you, if he shall send an army against the Persians, and if he shall take to himself any allied host. Such was their inquiry, and the judgment given to Croesus by each of the two oracles was the same to wit, that if he should send an army against the Persians, he would destroy a great empire. And they counseled him to discover the mightiest of the Greeks And make them his friends. When the divine answers had been brought back and Croesus learned of them, he was greatly pleased with the oracles. So, being fully persuaded that he would destroy the kingdom of Cyrus, he sent once again to Pytho and endowed the Delphians with two gold slaters apiece, according to his knowledge of their number. The Delphians, in return, gave Croesus and all Lydians the right of first consulting the oracle, freedom from all charges, the chief seats at festivals and perpetual right of Delphian citizenship to whoever should wish it. Then Croesus, after his gifts to the Delphians, made a third inquiry of the oracle, for he would use it to the full, having received true answers from it. The question which he asked in his inquest was whether his sovereignty should be of a long duration. To this the Pythian priestess answered as follows. Lydian, beware of the day when a mule is lord of the Midians. Then with thy delicate feet, by the stone-strewn channel of Hermes, flee for thy life, nor abide, nor blush from the name of a craven. When he heard these verses, Croesus was pleased with them above all, for he thought that a mule would never be king of the Medeans in place of a man, and so that he and his posterity would never lose his empire. Then he sought very carefully to discover who were the mightiest of the Greeks, whom he should make his friends. He found by inquiry that the chief peoples were the Lacedaemonians among those of Doric and the Athenians among those of Ionic stock. These races, Ionian and Dorian, were the foremost in ancient time, the first a Pelasgian and the second a Hellenic people. The Pelasgian stock has never yet left its habitation. The Hellenic has wandered often and afar. From the days of King Ducalion, it inhabited the land of Phthia. Then, in the time of Doris, son of Helen, the country called Histaean, under Osan Olympus. Driven by the Cadmeans from this Histian country, it settled about Pindus in the parts called Macedian. Thence, it, thence again it migrated to Dryopia, and at last came from Dryopia into Peloponnesus, where it took the name of Dorian. What language the Plasgians spoke, I cannot accurately say. But if one may judge by those that still remain of the Plasgians who dwell above the Tyrene in the city of Creston, who were once neighbors of the people now called Dorians, and at that time inhabited the country which now is called Thessalian, and of the Plasgians who inhabited Plasia and Skiles on the Hellespont, who came to dwell among the Athenians and by other towns too, which were Pelasgian and afterwards took a different name. If I say one may judge by these, the Plasgians spoke a language which was not Greek, if then all the Plasgian stocks so spoke, then the Attic nation, being of Plasgian blood, must have changed its language too at some time, when it became part of the Hellenes. For the people of Creston and Placia have a language of their own in common, which is not the language of their neighbors, and it is plain that they still preserve the fashion of speech which they brought with them in their migration into the places which they now dwell. But the Hellenic stock, as to me seems clear, has ever used the same in since the beginning yet being when separated from the Plasgians, but few in number. They have grown from a small beginning to compose a multitude of nations, chiefly because the Plasgians and many other foreign peoples united themselves with them. Before that, as I think, the Plasgic stock nowhere increased greatly in number while it was a foreign speech. Now, of these two peoples, Croesus learned that the Attic was held in subjugation and divided into factions by Pisistratus, son of Hippocrates, who at that time was sovereign over the Athenians. This Hippocrates was but a private man, when a great marvel happened to him, as he was at Olympia to see the games, when he'd offered the sacrifice the vessels, standing there full of meat and water, boiled without fire till they overflowed. Chilon, the Lacedaemonian, who was chanced to be there and saw this marvel, counseled Hippocrates not to take into his house a child-bearing wife, if so might be, But if he had one already, then at least to send her away, and if he had a son, to disown him. Hippocrates refused to follow the counsel of Chilon, and presently there was born to him this Pisistratus aforesaid. In the course of time there was a feud between the Athenians of the coast under Megacles, son of Alcmaeon, and the Athenians in the plain under Lycurgus, son of Aristolades. Pisistratus then having an eye to the sovereign power, raised up a third faction. He collected partisans and pretended to champion the hill men, and this was his plan. Wounding himself and his mules, he drove his carriage into the marketplace with a tale that he'd escaped from his enemies, who would have slain him, so he said, as he was driving into the country. <clears throat> so he besought the people that he might have a guard from them, and indeed he had won himself reputation in his command of the army against the Megarians, when he had taken Nicaea and performed other great exploits. Thus deceived, the Athenians' people gave him a chosen guard of citizens, of whom Pisistratus, Pisistratus made not spearmen but clubmen, for the retinue that followed him bore wooden clubs. These with Pisistratus rose and took the Acropolis, and Pisistratus ruled the Athenians, disturbing in no way the order of offices nor changing the laws but governing the city according to its established constitution, and ordering all things fairly and well. But after no long time, the faction of Megacles and Lycurgus made a common cause and drove him out. Thus did Pisistratus first win Athens, and then did he lose his sovereignty, which was not yet firmly rooted. Presently, his enemies who had driven him out began once more to be at feud. Megacles then, being buffeted about by faction, sent a message to Pisistratus, offering him his daughter-to-wife and the sovereign power besides. This offer being accepted by Pisistratus, who agreed on these terms with Megacles, they devised a plan to bring Pisistratus back, which to my mind was so exceedingly foolish that it's strange, seeing that from old times the Hellenic has ever been distinguished from the foreign stock by its greater cleverness and its freedom from silly foolishness, that these men should devise such a plan to deceive Athenians, said to be the cunningest of the Greeks." There was in the Penean deme a woman called Phea, three fingers short of four cubits in stature, and for the rest fair to look upon. This woman they equipped in full armor and put her in a chariot, giving her all such appurtenances as, as would make the seemliest show, and so drove into the city. Heralds ran before them, and when they came into the town, made proclamation as they were charged, bidding the Athenians to give a hearty welcome to Pisistratus, whom Athene herself honored beyond all men and was bringing back to her own citadel. So the heralds went about and spoke thus. Immediately it was reported to the deems that Athene was bringing Pisistratus back, and the townsfolk, persuaded that the woman was indeed the goddess, worshipped this human creature and welcomed Pisistratus. Having won back his sovereignty in the manner which I have shown, Pisistratus married Megacleves' daughter, according to his agreement with Megacles, But as he already had young sons, and the Alcmonid family were said to be under a curse, he had no wish that his newly wed wife should bear him children and therefore had a wrongful intercourse with her. At first the woman hid the matter. Presently she told her mother, whether being asked or not I know not, and the mother told her husband. Megacles was very angry that Pisistratus should do him dishonor, and in his wrath he made up his quarrel with the other faction. Pisistratus learning what was afoot, went by himself altogether away from the country and came to Eritrea. Where he took counsel with his sons. The counsel of Hippias prevailing that they should recover the sovereignty, they set to collecting gifts from all cities which owed him some requital. Many of these gave great sums, the Thebans more than any. And in the course of time, not to make a long story, all was ready for their return. And they brought Argive mercenaries from Peloponnesus. And there came also of his own free will a man of Naxos called Lycdemus. Who was the most zealous in their cause and brought them money and men? So after ten years they set out for Eretria and returned home. The first place in Attica which they took and held was Marathon, and while encamped there they were joined by their partisans from the city and by others who flocked to them from the country deems men who loved the rule of one more than freedom. These then assembled, but the Athenians in the city who, while Pisistratus was collecting money and afterwards, when he'd taken Marathon, made no account of it did now, when they learned that he was marching from Marathon against Athens, and set out to attack him. They came out with all their force to meet the returning exiles. Pisistratus's men, in their march from Marathon towards the city, encountered the enemy, when they had reached the temple of in Athene, and encamped face to face with them. There, by the providence of heaven, Pisistratus met Amphilitus the Ecarnanian, a diviner, who came to him and prophesied as followed in Hexameter verses, Now hath the cast been thrown, and the net of the fisher is outspread. All in the moonlight clear shall the tunny fish come for the taking. So spoke Amphilitus, being inspired. Pisistratus understood him, and saying that he received the prophecy, led his army against the enemy. The Athenians of the city had at this time gone to their breakfast, and after breakfast some betook themselves to dicing, and some to sleep. They were attacked by Pisistratus's men and put to flight. So they fled, and Pisistratus devised a very subtle plan to keep them scattered and prevent their assembling again. He mounted his sons and bade them ride forward. They overtook the fugitives and spoke to them, as they were charged by Pisistratus bidding them take heart and depart each man to his home. This the Athenians did, and by this means Pisistratus gained Athens for the third time. Where, that his sovereignty might be well-rooted, he made himself a strong guard, and collected revenue both from Athens and from the district of the river Strymon, and took as hostages the sons of the Athenians, who remained and did not at once leave the city, and placed these in Naxos. He conquered Naxos too, and given it in charge to Adelik Moreover, he purified the island of Delos according to the bidding of the oracles, and this is how he did it. He removed all the dead that were buried in ground within sight of the temple, and carried them to another part of Delos. So Pisistratus was sovereign of Athens, and as for the Athenians, some had fallen in the battle, and some, with the Alcmonids, were exiles from their native land.